So let's stand and uh, pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, that it's living, that it changes lives, that it changes our lives. We pray that as we look at your word today, Lord, you administer your word to us through your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to be our our counselor, our guide, our instructor, our teacher. We pray that you would grant each one of us ears to hear what you were saying to each of us and to your church. We ask that you bless the, the word in the catechism classes, Lord, and cause it to um, bear much fruit in the lives of our young ones. We ask in your name and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been talking about... Um, well, let's go to Hebrews, go back to Hebrews, which we looked at recently. I'm going to be talking to you for the next uh, few weeks, maybe a few months. I don't know. We'll see how the Lord leads. Uh, but I want to talk to you about faith. We talked about uh, the Passover. We talked about Israel being delivered out of Egypt, yet the first generation did not enter the promised land. As we learn here in Hebrews chapter 3, the cause of their failure was unbelief. Uh, here in Hebrews 3, it says in verse 15, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. <clears throat> For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who were called out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he, meaning the Lord, angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey, or it could be translated, did not believe? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Um, and then he goes on and he continues to exhort the, the Hebrews, and, and not just them, but us, to enter in. And he says in chapter 4, verse 11, oh, starting in verse 9, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered into his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience or the same example of unbelief. It seems ironic that he says here in verse 11, uh, be diligent to enter his rest. It sounds like a contradiction, right? Because we think of rest as doing nothing. But that's not the kind of rest that the Christian is called to. We're called to a rest which is a life of activity, a life of labor, a life of battling, but a life of victory and a life of fullness. Amen? Um, and then he goes on and immediately says, For the word of God is living and powerful, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And it, it's striking. It seems like... Uh, the author just kind of changes subjects here. It says, enter into God's rest. Then he immediately says, for the word of God. Well, you know, one of the, one of the unfortunate results of having our Bibles with verse numbers, and by the way, those aren't in the original. <laughs> I remember I gave a Bible to a, a young woman I led to Christ years ago. And she called me, and she was reading her Bible, and she called me up one day and said, man, you know what, I read my Bible today? And she started reading, and I'm like, thinking, that's not in the Bible. Where is she getting this? And then I realized she was reading the footnote. And she thought those were inspired. So, um, 
the, the verse numbers aren't in there, and but the, the tendency is we often read verses in isolation from the context. So we'll read a verse and not read the paragraph that it's in, or even the chapter it's in, or even the book that it's in. And so we don't, we're not following the connection here. So um, the author immediately says, enter into God's rest, the word of God. Well, what's the connection? Well, think about Israel, right? Think about the story of Israel that we've been alluding to. They're, they're taken out of Egypt. They go to the Red Sea. They see the mighty works of God. They wander briefly. They get up to the border of the land. They do not enter in. And the author tells us here, they did not enter in because of unbelief. Well, unbelief of what? Now, if I got up here this morning and I said, believe, believe, I can say it louder, believe. The obvious question is, believe what? What do you want to believe? I can shout believe all day long. The question is, what, 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 what am I believing? When Israel didn't enter in, when Israel didn't believe, what they didn't believe was the word of God. The word of God. Because God told them, I will give you this land. I promise you this land is yours. I promise you that if you go into the land, I will defeat your enemies. I promise you. So in other words, they had a word from God. God spoke his word to them and their faith was to be in his word, what he said. That's the connection in this context. The unbelief of the Israelites was an unbelief in the revelation that God had given them, the promise that he had given them that he would bring them into the land, that he had given them the land. So let's talk briefly about, when we talk about faith, we have to understand a couple things. One, what do we mean by faith? And then secondly, which I'm already alluding to, is when we talk about faith, we have to talk about and think about what it is we're believing. What, what is the object of our faith? So when we talk about faith, what, what do we really mean? Now go to Hebrews 11, and this will help us understand faith. Hebrews 11, which I encourage you to read, and um, maybe read and reread. It's called the Hall of Faith, where the author goes through a list of many well-known Old Testament saints. In Hebrews 11... It says, now faith is the substance... I'm reading the New King James, by the way. Yours may read slightly differently. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, meaning by faith, the elders or the ancients obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So here the author says that faith, in verse 1, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. When we talk about faith, we're talking about, uh, first of all, having an understanding or a knowledge, some kind of knowledge. As I said before, to say believe doesn't mean anything if there's not something I'm supposed to believe in. Imagine you're sitting at Starbucks and you're having your coffee and 
somebody sits next to you and you think, I'm going to share the gospel with them. And you lean over and you say, believe. And then you walk out. Have you shared the gospel? No, right? Because they could say, oh, okay, good. I believe in Allah. Or I'll believe in myself. I'll believe in what? So believe what? There has to be an object to our faith. So when uh, the apostle talks about faith, he's talking about a a persuasion of some truth, some truth, some object, some thing. Okay, and it, so so faith assumes or implies knowledge, which is why in Hebrews, when we're exhorted to enter in. We're told the word of God is, etc., etc. So we we must have a perception of the object or the thing or the person that we are believing. But we also must have what's called reliance or trust. Reliance or trust. So true faith is both knowledge, but it is also trust. It is relying on the object of our faith. Um, So if I believe something, I not only know something about that person or thing, but knowing that person or thing, I then am able to rely or trust on that person or thing. So... We must perceive the truth, but then we must receive the truth. And they're not the same. And, and I'm talking to Christians now. The one, one of the challenges of the Christian life is that we often perceive more than we receive. We know, or we at least intellectually assent, to more than we are actually relying on or trusting in. And so, growing in faith means not necessarily gaining more knowledge, but rather it means learning to trust and rely on the knowledge we already have. And so, um, what this entails, we'll, we'll develop a little more later, but the point being is that when we talk about faith, we, we, our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in an object or a person or a thing outside of ourselves. Right? And so, when we talk about faith, and we talk about faith including knowledge, we're talking about the fact that there's an object to our faith. And what is that object? What 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 did the what did the Israelites not believe? Well, you could say they didn't believe the promise. In other words, they didn't believe the word, right? Which is true. But whose word was it? Now, let's say I walk up to you and I say, um, Bob. I don't know if we got a Bob here. Bob, um, quit your job tomorrow. Walk by faith. God will provide. 
You don't have to believe me. Now, if Jesus showed up, literally, and he said, Bob, quit your job tomorrow and trust my father to provide, you'd be in a totally different situation, wouldn't you? Why? Same thing was said. What's the difference? What's the difference? Yeah, who? The difference is who said it. So, I can say something, you can say, I don't believe that. That's your prerogative. But if God says something to you, do you have that prerogative? You see, when we talk about believing or not believing God's word, the, the thing we have to understand is that the value of the word is really a reflection of the value of the person. The, the veracity or truthfulness of God's word is, is rooted in the fact that God himself is true. So, th- this is why unbelief is such a grievous sin. Okay, it's such a grievous sin. And because to not believe the word of God is to not believe God. Now think about that. Think about what unbelief implies. Think about what it implies about the character of God. To not believe God is to say what about him? He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's unfaithful. He's untrue. He's not good. So much is implied about God's character, you see, in unbelief. And this is why uh, faith is so important, but it's also why unbelief in Scripture is such a grievous sin. Because when you read, like when you read the account of, of Israel and you think of them not going into the wilderness, and, and you read the text in Hebrews here where it says that God swore in his anger, it's like, geez, God. Didn't you kind of overreact? But it's because we're not seeing unbelief for what it is, for what it really says about God. And so the object of our faith is really twofold. Twofold. The fundamental object of our faith is God Himself. That is, if we believe, if we believe in Scripture. And we believe that God has spoken his word to us. Even though we say we believe in his word, which we'll talk about more in a moment, we're really saying we're believing or not believing in God. And so when we talk about God being the object of our faith, we have to understand that that believing God means believing something or many things about his very character. To believe God means what? What does that really mean? Well, it means that we, number one, it means that we believe in God's ability or power to bring to pass that which he has spoken. He has spoken. Now, when you think about Israel again in the wilderness, they're going along and they have this difficulty and they murmur and then they, God provides, they have another difficulty, they murmur and God provides. And, and in many of these situations, they're basically what they were saying was God can't take care of us. God is not able to do 
what he said he was going to do. So when we believe in God, when we truly believe him, we are saying that he is able to bring to pass whatever he has spoken to us. And that ability to bring it to pass may be rooted in his power to do so, his ability, his wisdom to do so. But in either case, God has the ability to bring his word to pass. Look at Romans 4 for a moment. We see this in the, in the case of Abraham. I love this passage. It's so good. Um, where do we begin? We just have to start in 13. Now, one thing I do want to point out is that the... Well, never mind. Okay. Verse uh, 13, 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, the, the promise to Abraham was not rooted in his obedience. That's not to say obedience is important, but the, uh, Paul's point here is that God gave a promise to Abraham completely apart from the law and obedience. For those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there's no law, there is no transgression. Do you understand that? You can't break a law that doesn't exist. So if you if you're going if you're driving on the autobahn in Europe you can't be arrested for speeding because there are no speed speed limits. If you drive on the highway out here speed you will get a ticket. There will be a transgression because there's a law. No law, no transgression, no law, no wrath. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law but those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Who, contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. God came to Abraham, and God said to Abraham, You will be the father of many nations. Your seed will be like the stars of heaven and like the sand of the sea. He said this to a man who was old. He said this to a man whose wife, her womb was barren. So from a human perspective, the, the, the promise was not fulfillable. It was a promise in which there was nothing in the human plane which was going to bring this promise to pass. Now Abraham, unfortunately, had a lapse of faith. And what did Abraham do? He got his concubines. Well, God hasn't provided the air yet, so I think what I'll do is I think I'll just go and help God. I'm going to help God bring his promise to pass. Well, God didn't need Abraham's help. Amen? Amen. And the reason is, it says here that God gives life to the dead. Something we cannot do. God calls the things that are not as though they are. What, what, what this means is that something is, does, it has no existence, it does not exist, and God speaks it into being. He speaks it into being. Sarah's womb was dead, Abraham was old, 
There was no natural life, if you will, no means of, of, of conceiving naturally in that situation. And But God called that which was not and said, it is. You will conceive, and she conceived. He called it into being. Not being weak in faith, <clears throat> he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Okay, he did not consider these things. In other words, he did not look at the obstacles, things that we would consider obstacles, to the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, the thing we have to understand about God's promise is that the promises of God are rooted in God. They are not rooted in the environment. They are not rooted in the situation. They are not even rooted in us. They are rooted in God. So when God speaks something, it's true even if it doesn't look true. How do we know it's true? Because God is true. Because God only speaks truth. God does not lie, the Word of God tells us. And when God says something is, then it is. So he says to Abraham, I will make you a father of many nations. Your descendants will be like the stars and like the sand. And, and, and when he spoke those words, if Abraham looked around him, he would think, no way. It is not possible. And you know what? Humanly, it was not possible. But God speaks life to the dead. And God speaks that which is not and brings it into being. And so it is because God says it is. So he didn't look at the weakness. He didn't look at his own body. He didn't look at the the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver, verse 20. Uh, I think the King James says stagger. I love that. Because the idea is, you got, I mean, you know, we read this stuff and like, yeah, okay, he believed God. I mean, you have to understand what's going on here. You have to understand that God showed up to an old man. He's got an old wife and they're not going to have kids. It ain't going to happen. And not the the promise wasn't just. By the way, you're going to have a child. It's it's that you're through that child, you'll be the father of many nations. I mean, the promise is staggering when you think about it, and it's staggering when you think about the situation that Abraham was facing. So it's it, it says here he didn't waver, he didn't stagger. The, the promise was so great that it was unbelievable. Not the Lord showed up to you and said, Justice, I'm going to bless you with $50 this week. I'll take that. (laughs) And I I think I wouldn't have any trouble believing that. But if God showed up and said, I'm going to give you $5 million this week. (laughs) You know what you would do? You would... You would... (laughs) Yeah, you would make sure you tithe. That's what you would do. No. You would, if you got that promise, you would stagger. You hear what I'm saying? Because it would be so great and so overwhelming, you you would be tempted to not believe because it was so great. It's unbelievable. This is one of the reasons people don't receive the gospel. It's, it's not just good news. It is The news is so good, they can't believe it's that good. 
They can't believe that God would love them enough to send His Son to die for them. That, that God would receive them in the fellowship based upon simple reception of faith and not by, by their works. It's, it's overwhelming. And they stagger in unbelief. Abraham did not stagger even though the promise was unbelievable. It says, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. So God shows up to Abraham says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father. Uh, not just a father, but a father of many nations. And not only a father of many nations, but through your seed, the Messiah will come. Staggering Unbelievable promise. And Abraham looks at his wife and says, eh. <laughs> looks at himself, nah. But he said to himself, I'm not able. My wife's not able. But God is able. God is able to bring to pass whatever he promises. So when we talk about faith in God, we're talking about God's ability. God's ability. Now, let me ask you, my friends, is there anything too hard for God to do? Do you really believe that? Anything too hard? We assent. Okay, we assent. We know. Well, of course not. I mean, my, my theology tells me that if, that if God is God, if, if God's the God of the Bible, then, then surely there's nothing too hard for him. So I have to say yes. I'm constrained to say yes. Yeah. I'm constrained to say nothing's too hard for him. But then the test comes when I'm in a position, a situation, which is impossible. Or it may be even difficult. You see, a general affirmation of God's ability isn't faith until it's applied to a specific situation. You hearing me? A general affirmation of God's ability is assent. When I apply it to a particular situation or problem, then it's faith. Then it's faith. Look at uh, Matthew 6 for a moment. Are you hearing anything today? Where did I say to go? Okay. I have a short memory. 625. The context, again, is Jesus is talking about our relationship to, to money and material things. He says in 24, you can't serve two masters, for either you hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We might say God and materialism or God and things. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not worry what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now there's a promise, right? Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for each day is its own trouble. Three times in this passage, Jesus says, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. Some of you worry, and some of you are sinning. You are sinning by your worry. It is a sin to worry. It is a sin to be anxious because it is unbelief. It's unbelief. And you can sit here, and I can sit here. I'm not just preaching to you. We can sit here and say, I believe in God's ability. And make that affirmation. And we can sing it. We can sing God. Uh, gives gives life to the dead and God does all these wonderful things. And we can assert it. But when we're in a situation, do we apply it? See, that's the question. And I know Christians that talk about worrying as if that's how they talk about how much they worry as if that's just the way they are. Well, if that's the way you are, that's the way you need to change. Because you're not thinking, you're not thinking through the implications of what you're doing. Because if you're walking in fear and you're walking in anxiety and you're worried about paying the bills and you're worried about your job and you're worried about that promotion or you're worried about this and you're worried about that, then you are walking in unbelief. I'm sorry, there's no nice way to say it. And it's a sin. We need to take our general faith and make it a very specific faith. You know, I've used, I've shared many times that the, the old pastor that I sat under for years used to say, you can believe Jesus died for the world, that's history, but until you believe Jesus died for you, well, that's salvation. And it's true. But it applies for the Christian too. We can assent to all sorts of things. We can assent that God is powerful. We can assent that God has ability. We can assent in general that it's true. The question is, when we're in a difficult situation, do we then assent and walk in the reality of it? You see what I'm saying? That's the issue. So assent is knowledge. But when we apply it, that's faith. And we apply it in a difficult situation. We apply it in a situation where we would naturally be afraid or naturally be anxious. That's when we need to exercise our faith. It's in those situations. So, Abraham believed God was able to perform the unbelievable, so he believed. And as Jeremiah said, he said, God, you are the maker of the heaven and the earth. Is there anything too difficult for you? The, of course, implied answer is no. No. And so, if God can create the heavens and the earth, then God can give you a hamburger. God can fill your gas tank. 
God can protect your children. God can restore your marriage. God can heal your body. God can do all sorts of things for you because He is able to do those things. He has the ability to do things that from a mere human perspective are unbelievable. They're unbelievable. We heard, we heard miraculous stories today about people, broken marriage, they pick up a Bible, they both get saved, their marriage is restored. That's a miracle. That's unbelievable. But I believe it. Right? I believe it. So, God is able to do that which from our perspective is not possible. And until we believe in the situation... In the moment, in the unbelievable moment, in the moment of testing, in the moment of trial, until we're believing then, then we're not believing. You hearing me? If we're not believing then, then we're not believing. If we're, if we only assent in general, then we're not believing. So we must believe in God's ability to bring His word to pass, whatever that word is. But we also must believe in God's veracity or His honesty or His truthfulness. We must believe that God cannot lie. Now the Word of God asserts this over and over and over. And it tells us that God is not a man that He should lie. So uh, Paul tells us, let God be true, but every man a liar. In other words, whatever people might say, contrary to what God says... I'm going to believe what God says. That's what I'm going to believe. No matter what anybody else says, I'm going to believe what God says. Because God is true. In other words, God's character is such that God cannot lie. He cannot lie. Look at James 1 for a moment. James 1. says, um, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away of his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Don't you love that verse? It's not like God is 99% good and He's got a little darkness. Right? But there's no shadow in Him. Not only is there no darkness, there's no shadow in Him. 1 John 1, which I was meditating on during the worship today. And 1 John 1, a few pages over to your right. He says, uh, John says in chapter 1, verse 5, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. This is the message. Okay, what's the message? What's the message? What's the, what's the important message that John's got to tell us? Here is the message. God is light. And in him is only a little bit of darkness. Whoa, nope. That's not what it says, right? 
God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. None whatsoever. So when God speaks, He speaks light. He speaks out of His character, out of His being. So God's Word is even called light, okay? Because He speaks out of who He is, and God is light. So when God speaks, His Word is true. It's not a little bit true. It's true. And so He speaks the truth, and therefore He cannot lie, and therefore His Word can be relied upon. Is anybody hearing me? It can be relied upon because of who God is. He's truthful. And this is why, again, unbelief is so, so bad. Because John goes on and he says in chapter 5, if you want to turn there with me, in 1 John 5, it's chapter, verse 9, he says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Now, what he's saying is, is that generally speaking, we receive the testimony of men. Bill shared today, he gave testimony. He bore witness to things that God did. I believe him. I have no reason not to believe him. So generally, you give credence to people unless there's a reason not to believe them, right? That's what John is saying. But the witness or the testimony of God is greater. In other words, if we're going to, if we generally believe people when they tell us things, then how much more are we to believe God? For this is the witness which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son, verse 10, the Son of God, has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God, listen, he who does not believe God has made him a liar. Whoa. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. If we're not believing the Lord, and I mean believing Him in our everyday life, not just believing Him to be saved, the implication is that He's not honest. He can't be trusted. The implication is He's a liar. Now, anybody here want to stand up and say God's a liar? I didn't think so. Because you would never say it. You would never assert it. But you might act it out. Because in various situations, what happens is, what we really believe comes out. So when we're confronted with a a trial or a temptation or a difficulty or a puzzle, in, in that moment, what comes out? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Frustration? What, what's coming out? Or is it confidence and rest in God? You see? Faith means God is able to perform, and faith means God is true to His Word. It at least means those two things. And it means much more, but for the sake of time, we have to conclude today. We're going to talk more about faith in the the coming weeks. God is able, amen? amen? And God is true. God is true. Let's stand. I want to say one more thing to you while you stand. 
And that is this. I believe it was providential that, don't look at them, look at me. I think it was providential that Bill shared today. The funny thing is I forgot he was sharing today. Sorry. (laughs) But I think it's providential with my sermon. Okay? Because the, the knowledge that we have of God, where does it come from? Does it come from the deep well well of your inner being? No. It comes from God's revelation to us, right? God's revelation to us. And as we'll talk more next week, to believe Him, to trust Him, of course means trusting His Word. You, you will not be able to walk in faith in a practical way in your Christian life, if you don't know the Word. You have to be in the Word. You have to be reading the Word. You have to be meditating on the Word. You have to be listening to the Word. The Word of God is the object of our faith in a practical sense, although it's really, God, we're trusting, but we're trusting what He has revealed. You following me? And if we're not in the Word... If we're not strong in the Word, we will not be strong in faith. It doesn't happen. Because our faith is directed to the Word of God. The promises of God for you are in this book. They're in here. So you need to find them, right? You need to understand them. You need to believe them. They're in here. They're not in here. They're in here. They're not in the sky. They're in here. God spoke to Abraham and he believed the word. God promised Israel they would go into the the promised land. They had a word. They didn't believe. You have a word. You have a lot of words. You have many promises. Matter of fact, Peter says that we have we have so many promises, we have enough promises for basically all of life and godliness. We have those we have those words. So you need to be in the word. Amen.